Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we are covering every single episode of Good Omens based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserved. I am Vero. And I am Lina. Hello, hello. And today we are talking about the book, the differences, and the book. And everything Vero loves about the book. Try and stop me. (laughs) And the book is Good Omens, obviously, in case you didn't gather that by now. So, welcome to this episode. It's probably going to be a bit of a hot mess because this is the first time we're actually talking about a book and not a visual content. We have found ourselves here staring at each of our notes and preparation in a very different style as per usual. Gasp! Surprise! I know. But this time it might actually affect a little bit what you're going to hear. So hopefully we're going to be enjoyable enough so you get to hear this. At least hopefully we're going to be entertaining enough. Well, I mean, uh, there is entertaining in the book. So I feel (laughs) like as long as you enjoy the book, you should be entertained. As long as you enjoy listening to us talking bullshit and being angry at each other and making fun of each other, then you're in for a trade, I would assume. Absolutely. So I'm just going to start very, very briefly with the foreword. The foreword was written by Neil Gaiman, and it is a little introduction to the process of writing of this book between him and Terry. And there are two things that stand out. First of all, the etiquette tip that Neil gives us. It's okay, more or less, to ask an author to sign your arm, but not good manners to then nip around to the tattoo parlor next door and return half an hour later to show them the inflamed result. So please let your tattoos heal before you stick them under somebody's nose. That's first thing to learn. And then Neil ends this by saying, and we understand there is a copy in the Vatican Library. And I ask, is that a rumor or a wishful thinking? I obviously did not even pay attention to the foreword because it does not relate to the show. So I was like, doesn't matter, gotta ignore these two pages, two pages less I have to read. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go into the book itself, obviously there have been interviews and everything where Neil talked about the process of adapting the book to the show. And a few things I think we already talked about when we covered Neil as a person in the bonus material. But basically when he did start trying to adapt the book, he parted it into six pieces. And those are roughly the episodes that we got. He did shuffle around a few things that happened later in the book, happened earlier in the episodes or the other way around. But he had to cut a few things for timing reasons and for money reasons. Because while Amazon was willing to finance quite a lot, it was not a Game of Thrones level money volume. So he had to cut a few things. And according to some sources that I found, most of the stuff that was cut was stuff Gaiman wrote and not Pratchett. So he would apparently take out things in favor of keeping stuff in from Terry. So I actually really, really like that because as we are all well aware, this was the last wish. And so this is very, very sweet. And four of the biggest things that are being cut completely with no other real mention are the Johnsonites, which is the opposing gang for the them in Tadfield. Great loss. I mean, they are an integral part 
of how Adam reaches his conclusion in the in the end of the story in the book. So I'm impressed. The entire story and fate and everything of the third baby. The other bike gang group is completely cut. And the armies of heaven and hell showing up in persons at the airfield in the end. So that was supposed to happen. Seems lots like a personnel thing. Well, it would simply would be very, very expensive to like, either do it with CG or whatever, um, or CGI. But so those are the four biggest things. And apparently most of those are game and stuff. And also another big, big difference between book and the show is the addition of actual other angels aside from Aziraphale and the Metatron. And I did not notice, and this is why I wanted to include this, Neil did not make them up. He took them from what is called 668, the neighbor of the beast, which is what Terry and him were working on as an actual follow-up to Good Omens. So Gabriel and the other angels are taken from 668 and not Neil-only creations. Should we so assume that this work is going to be integral for season two of Good Omens? We will never know until it comes out, because not much is actually known about 668, The Neighbor of the Beast. I am very curious now. I mean, the title is amazing. I assume it's the same in most countries with how housing numbers work. Like in Germany, on the one side you have all the even numbers, on the other side you have all the odd numbers, so obviously 666 and 668 are right next to each other. So... It's fucking stupid and I love it. But I mostly love that Neil took a step back to make sure as much as possible from Terry stayed in. So, yeah. Just to tug on your heartstrings. <laughs> and that is all I have unrelated to going through through the book, like uh, surroundings and backstory and stuff. Lovely. Well, we have a very short in the beginning, which absolute majority of that is very brilliantly put on the screen. So there's not much to talk about. Except for me pointing out this is something that has happened multiple times throughout reading the book. Now, after I've seen the show multiple times, I literally cannot unhear the voices of Michael Sheen and David Tennant. They are forever Crowley and Azraphel for me. There is no other interpretation. I will always hear the words set in their voices. So you do hear the voice while you read them? Yes, and see their faces and expressions. But there is one a huge difference in the beginning. Did you notice it? Now I'm very curious what the huge difference is because I only have two small ones. The biggest one for me, at least, is that Crowley refers to God as he. I completely read over that. I did not notice it actively. Yes, it's totally obvious now that you pointed out. I completely glanced over that. (laughs) Yeah, he says, makes you wonder what he's really planning with a capital H. So I think that 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 is a great change that they made for the show. And that is that they refer to God as she. Yep, you're completely right. I completely... But I totally blanked on that. That's why there's the two of us, because I haven't seen any other differences. And you're going to tell me those. So while we are in Eden, we have this beautiful, beautiful scene of Crowley and Israfel standing next to each other on the wall. And you remember him morphing from the snake into his uh, humanoid form. And us going, ah, he's a redhead. He's not. Crowley is not a redhead in the book. He has dark hair. So, boo. 
clearly there is a reason why he has red hair finally on the show as in he as in David Tennant yes so that seems very much like a service to the actor who really wanted to be a ginger at some point and the other difference actually sets the tone for the rest of the book in my opinion Aziraphale shields only himself with his wings from the rain and he does not shield Crowley and this continues throughout the entire book they have a much less soft relationship they are rougher with each other when it comes to conversations they are less gentle in how they interact with each other there's a lot of one insisting and the other then abiding and not making concessions because you know the other person would like something more so that is a tone shift that continues and I am not going to keep pointing it out because it's so obvious in the beginning that I'm like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> there is a lot of slight change to certain relationships. And unfortunately, this is one that is the most prominent. And I think that there are very good reasons why they shifted away from that on the show. And they leaned way more into them being a couple than it is in the book. To me, it's not a shift away. To me, the show is an evolutionary step in their relationship the base is still completely there they are each other's very best friend but they are more human in the show than they are in the book in their behavior towards each other this is a lot of human softness and care that we see there are more in touch with their own feelings in the show that's not even how I would phrase it but like <laughs> we have an easier time understanding and relating to their behaviors because their shown behaviors is a bit more human than here but that is all I have for the entire time we are in Eden yeah we uh, 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 sorry see this is the, the one problem with having the book and not like so <laughs> dear listeners you can't see it but Vero has the book in front of her so at some point she's gonna bump her mic with her head and then she needs to flip the pages because she wrote her notes into her book, which how dare you? I would never write into a book. So that is point of contention number one. I took my notes exactly as I always do. I have a Google Sheet that is illuminating my face so that Vero can even see me. And I have written several pages of my notes. I will lose the plot so many times because I did not take as accurate notes, but... But this is why I'm here. So now we get through this entire history of Earth, which is identical. But we move on to the cemetery. And there is enough of it same that I really, really enjoyed it. But for example, one of my favorite jokes in the entire book, which unfortunately didn't make it to the screen. If Bruce Springsteen had ever recorded Born to Lurk, these two would have been on the album cover. Urgh. So funny. I literally spit out laughing when I read that. I missed that. <laughs> it's just so funny. Maybe we were born to lurk. No? Mm -hmm. Incredible. But uh, we get this amazing introduction of Huster and Liger. And it is obviously a little bit more detailed because we actually get to read it. And we get to kind of get all the little details that are shown to us on the screen. But unfortunately we can't comprehend all of the information at the same time as we see it. <laughs> 
that's one way to describe it. Books are just better, man. They're just so much better. While we are in a cemetery, we of course have the conversation with Crowley showing up and him being laid and why he's laid. And he talks about the M25. And I remember that we had a point of contention when we were recording the episode because we were not sure if he actually is responsible for the M25 or if he was taking credit. And I'm pretty sure I was the camp. He was actually responsible for it. And you were the one. I mean, he did mention that he moved a few markers. I don't know if we actually thought about this. I think that mostly it was because you said that he didn't really normally put in the work. Yes, like this is one of the very few things that supposedly he actually did. And here we have the proper confirmation. He really did. This is his work. So, yay! Makes you wonder what else he really did himself. Mm. Now, we uh, get into the car and there is a slight difference in how the demons communicate with Crowley. They talk through the radio, but they don't really use their own voice. Rather, they use the voice of the person on the radio or, or telly or whatever is happening or whatever they are using. So, rather than having, say, Beelzebub, speaking with his own or their own voice out of the radio, we have it described as Freddie Mercury is relaying this conversation, this entire statement, while singing Bohemian Rhapsody, which to me is absolutely chef's kiss. Like, I would love to hear that, but I understand why that had to be changed for the show, because it's just very beautiful to imagine, but quite difficult, I would say, to actually relay. Well, if you have to have all the different actors to then use it, just makes more work like uh, later when you have the the newscaster scene when they replace the newscasters with uh, Haster and stuff like that it's, it's just a uh, just easier it is like, like I said like they had to change most of the things because of money reasons and so it's nicer to not pay more people <laughs> and when you already have them under contract yay yeah in the car we also get Crowley mentioning something that is on the show but in a slightly different context where he mentions that he uh, hadn't meant to fall that he just hung out with the wrong people to me in this context it's giving me more of a well not that being angel was a good thing but I don't really want to be part of anything rather in the show it felt to me more like I didn't want to be a demon and I don't want to be like I could have very easily be in heaven still if I just didn't hang out with the wrong people. So it's just slight change of context other than that. But neither show nor book Crowley would like to be an angel. Yes, but there is a... Never mind. It read completely identical to me. So I, I sauntered down or I hung out with the wrong people. Like it's, He's using humour to not give us the information that we actually would like, which is like, how actually did you fall? But Crowley has no love for either heaven or hell. Yeah, it just felt like way more obvious from this context than it did when he uh, has said that on the show. Okay. Uh, my next note is when we actually meet Mr. Young and do the switcheroo and everything. Let's get into it then. Okay, so we are in the convent at some point and there's quite a bit of differences, but most of it is completely negligible. Like, to me, Mr. Young seems way more conservative, but 
probably more normal for the time the book was written. Also, Sister Mary seems not remotely as incompetent as she does in the show. She's still incompetent, but not that ginormously. Like, I remember how much I complained about how one incompetent person can derail the entire plan, especially if it's so obvious that she sucks this much. And in the book, I have much less issue with them fucking it up because it makes more sense. The switcheroo is compared to the pee under the cup and not to a card game. So that is a big difference. I don't know why we switched it up, but it got changed. It probably was in the context of how it was framed. Like, because it works still the same. Yeah, but the thing is later on, you have in the show the explicit reference with uh, playing poker in the dark. And then it was like, Okay, why why use cards twice if the original did not even use cards once? It did. We have the exact same quote with the poker being blind. Okay, then even less so. Why change it once and not change it twice? Like, made no sense to me. Maybe Piana the Cup is not as known as the turned over cards. I have no idea. I think it was more due to the uh, visual that we get. It's the under cup may have just been not as nice visually than uh, the three little babies on a cart or kings or whatever it was. Maybe. I don't know. But mostly Haster does not threaten the nuns at the end of it. He does not disband the order or tell them to basically run off if they don't want to die. I think he just burns down the convent and leaves them to their own devices and he doesn't care. Like he could not be ours to get involved any more than he has to with humans, which is actually more in keeping with what you would expect a demon to do. So... Yeah, also it takes a few days for him to actually destroy the building itself. And it makes more sense that way because obviously after you give birth, you, especially back then, would still spend a couple of days in a hospital, maybe. These days it is slightly different. You can usually go home fairly fast unless you had complications. I have literally no idea how any of that works. I know literally nothing about the post-pregnancy process like how long do you have to stay in the hospital or anything I'm like (laughs) yeah there is a few little details that have been obviously taken out of the adaptation because they are you know talking about habits and terrorists and stuff like that which is um, we just don't do that anymore we don't do these uh, associations anymore or we really 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 shouldn't because it should not be habit equal terrorists. Do you know the whole thing with the Secret Service being uh, very nervous about people running around in habits because they usually... What's a habit? Habit, like the, the, the thing, the coat that a nun wears. I did not know that the head cover of a nun is called a habit. A habit for me is a behavior. Oh, And I was okay. like, what are you talking about? Okay, yeah, so basically... They got rid of the racist shit that is in the yes. book because people do get better with time. Like I, I know that we love Gaiman and Pratchett, but we don't have to baby them. Like Parts of the jokes are, of course, a product of the time. And yes, in the 80s, racism and sexism and all the isms were funny or considered funny. And they did grow as people. And so it only makes sense that when you read something that you wrote 30 years ago and you have grown as a person that you then go like, oh, maybe I'm not gonna keep this in where I'm very aware that it was not a great joke. 
So I appreciate that they updated it. But that actually, I'm pretty sure, is one of the things like people were like, it got PC, which is like, no, it just grew up. Yes, that's actually <laughs> a great way to put that. Yeah. No, it's like seriously, like so many people complaining about like, oh, no, it got censored and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it just fucking got over the age of being 12 and edgy. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're absolutely right. So, one thing that made me extremely happy. Next chapter, right off the bat. First thing we learn is why Anathema is called Anathema. Okay, I missed that. Anathema device. Her mother, who was not a great student of religious matters, happened to read the word one day and thought it was a lovely name for a girl. So, Anathema's mother had no idea what Anathema means as a word. So this actually brings us to a discussion that we had on the podcast before, where you were like, why would you name a child anathema? Did you see what it actually means? It's a terrible word, which it is. And the answer is ignorance. She didn't know. Poor anathema. And there is another little tiny tidbit that tells us a little bit about etymology. And it just makes me so happy that we chose to do the uh, British word of the episode because it feels like they do also a little kind of a side quest to that. They educate us. They do educate us. One of us should have chosen the word nice and its etymology because apparently it meant something else back in the 1600s. But we knew that they covered it in the show, which is the reason why we didn't cover it. Newt does ask Anathema later in the show, why nice? And then Anathema explains it. I have completely blanked on that. (laughs) I love how selective our respective memories are. Ah, okay, well. (laughs) No, because like we, you are absolutely right. If it did never get explained in the show, then absolutely we should have and we would have covered nice. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, Sorry. Nice. No, because like even nowadays, nice is evolving because like saying noise is not the actual like, oh, nice, gentle, likeable. It's like, uh, cool. Cool for that matter has evolved meaning wise. <laughs> um, so it's like language. It's a living thing. <laughs> so there is a beautiful description of Anathema actually as well, because we are now just very briefly introducing her when she's eight and a half years old and just kind of telling us a little bit about the background that we don't really get on the show because it is nearly impossible to do something like that in a a short scene on a television. We get enough, but there is a beautiful description of her as a person and as a child that I really, really loved. And it goes, she was precocious and self-possessed. The only thing about Anathema her teachers ever had the nerve to upbraid her for was her spelling which was not so much appalling as 300 years too late to me the biggest difference with anathema is in the show her family is fucking rich and in the book especially later on she is the last living descendant she does not have any family she still has the money though it's only alluded to in the book in the show it is made very clear that she is fucking loaded yes yeah i mean it is just easier to kind of put it across that way I feel like. The thing is, to me, this, just like the language and joke updates, it just makes it a tiny bit less miserable because Anathema in the book is utterly alone and the only reason for her existence and active living is the book. And at the very end, when the second book shows up, she does not remotely have any kind of reaction to it. She's like, okay, this is my second book and then she would take it. And Newt is there to be like, you don't actually have to. And Nefema in the show 
has much more agency and she was not needlessly made miserable and alone because there is no point for that. So to me, this is once again, let's elevate it. Let's have it grown up a bit because guess what? You don't have to be alone and miserable to be an interesting character. So that's how I actually read most of these base changes. Mm. It gained more depth, it got made more interesting, and it learned a bit from the last, I mean, fucking 40 years, basically. Indeed. There is a, a little minor change that we get when we just very quickly dip back into the hospital, and that, that Mr. Dowling was on the phone, on the book, and he had the Secret Service videotape the birth which i think that they videotape it on the show as well but uh he is on a on a video call which it got modernized and it makes so much sense and it gave us the opportunity to have nick offerman on the screen which i think elevated the entire show to another level (laughs) so i'm very very happy about that but also this once again it goes through the entire story they update all the electronics and devices <laughs> device the <laughs> entire adaptation through and just like with the characters and the jokes they matured the used technology they went with the fucking times and i love it which is incredible because in a lot of stories and I hate myself for even bringing subjects <laughs> up. But like if you look at at a, at a works like Harry Potter, they specifically avoid using technology at all because if they would introduce anything to it, regardless of what kind of technology, it would ruin the entire story. While this story is written well enough to be able to withstand that. So this story is written well enough to deal with certain things much better because you can have a you can introduce items that potentially in the future might have an issue but if your story is good enough it won't matter because there will be ways around it or to explain it or whatever exactly if a story is only skin deep it is much harder and so (sighs) i mean i'm not gonna pass up the chance to dunk on certain things yes So, yes, uh, there are certain stories that can withstand upgrading the technology. And this is one of them. And it just is a really nice show of how good it actually is. It really, really speaks for the source material that it is so perfectly upgradable on every layer without changing anything relevant to the story. Yeah. And also, we get a little tiny note about Baby. Hold on. Baby B is the one that is the original American embassy child. Mm -hmm. So that's the one that maybe gets adopted, which is then confirmed later on. And I am, for one, extremely amused by that entire thing. Because we get a little inkling to it on the show. But the fact that they actually go through the motions and they let us know what actually happens to the baby. It made me so happy because it just enriches the story to me so much. It's also done very, very well once again because as a reader, I would be more upset to not be given the needed information. In a show, I'm distracted by the shiny pictures, so I won't mind as much usually. (laughs) Yeah. So it makes sense medium to medium. Anything else for the convent? That is it for the convent. And then we have the little insert that introduces Newt to us as a child. I hated that part. I do not like Book Newt at all. What? 
I love him so much. He's such a cute baby. Okay, for the record, I like Book Shadwell a lot more than Show Shadwell. I find Book Madam Tracy much more boring than Show Madam Tracy. I prefer Show Anathema over Book Anathema greatly. I prefer the Book Them over the Show Them. <laughs> of course you do. Because... They have more of a backbone in the book. True. And they already have backbone on the show. Come on. And I would love to actually have show Adam with book them. (laughs) (laughs) Like that would work really, really well for me. I am going to say it here. So if you're not happy with that, go away now. I prefer Crowley and Aziraphale in the show over in the book. No, this makes sense because as you said, that their relationship is more grown up on the show. There's more depth and nuance to it because like one of the biggest differences and I don't really know where I would mention it so I might as well mention it here. The book does not give us the actual backstory of the 6,000 years of friendship. First of all that and second of all there is and this is connected to it. There's so much less of the two of them in the book. Yeah. At least it feels that way because then, for example, Crowley is at the beginning a little bit and he does this big thing and whatever. And then there's nothing for like 150 pages. But we still have the pond. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like he does very little at the beginning and then he's gone for half of the book. When we go into the actual days, we do not see much of our ineffable husbands. Which is a shame, because I definitely miss them. Now, we do get some of the backstory, as I said, on uh, Newt. And uh, the biggest difference there is, again, it goes slightly more into the depth in introducing what are his capabilities and how passionate he actually truly is about things, uh, building things and trying to make them work, which is very well portrayed on the show. But for obvious reasons, time-wise and everything, it just can't go into so much depth as it would in a book. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm like, yay, books, go books. Hmm. And this is it for me until we get finally Azurafel and Crowley together again. Which is in the park and there we have our first difference. They are standing at the pond, not sitting on a bench. Ta-da! Huge difference. Huge, huge difference. Yes, because when you're standing and having a conversation, you are more efficient in your conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Now, there is a lot of, way more actually, of the word ineffable kind of thrown around the book. It practically feels like it's mentioned every other page. It is also, well, that's the same in the show. It is mentioned in the show enough, but it it feels like (laughs) I actually got to read it so many times while reading this book. But uh, that's not a huge change. There is a few uh, little notes that I have on this, and that is mainly things that they had then took on the show and then created the entire backstory. Like, for example, Crowley says, I like the seas as they are. It doesn't have to happen. And then he goes, you don't have to test everything to destruction just to see if you made it right, which is a great quote. And it is something that we get, on the other hand, more in detail on the show because we get the entire backstory of them watching the flood being prepared and stuff like that, where all of these little details are brought more out there and kind of develop their relationship a little bit more in detail, which I'm all for. At this point, we get to learn a little bit more about Azrafel, which is lovely in a sense that they give us just so much background that if you combine the show and the book, you get such a beautiful, huge picture. Like, for example, the sign, the open sign or when he's open, that's not in the book. 
So they went above and beyond to make it for the show. While also we don't have the details about the changed Bibles on the show because that would be very difficult to show uh, on the screen. But we have an entire section where... Zirafel actually written down the thing into the edits of the Bible and then they actually printed it as a mistake and now he on- owns that copy where there is the real story what happened to the sword which is something that we have on the show about the whole oh didn't you have a flaming sword it, they turned this into a running joke which works great on television but that is also another thing that goes through the entire book or show the changes that they made because of the medium book to television are so sensible that I am surprisingly not angry at nearly any of them. There are a few tiny, tiny Mm -hmm. things that I'm not happy about because I'm still me, duh. But adaptation-wise, this is probably one of the fucking best adaptations I have ever looked at. Yeah, you can see that there is a lot of little details that... Neil would have maybe changed if he was writing the book now and he got the opportunity to actually do that. And, you know, as I have seen a lot of different authors talk about any book is a work in progress. You can edit until you die if you want to. You At some point, you have to just stop yourself and let it out there. And sometimes it's a good thing because you don't want to over-edit. But also there are always little details that you could have done better and you don't realize it until years later because you have grown as a person since then. And Neil having the opportunity to do that is amazing. And the fact that he has actually taken it up and done such a good job with it makes me so happy. But yeah, this is the moment where we have the first mention of Agnes. But fun fact, actually, Agnes is not mentioned in connection to Anathema for the first time. She is mentioned in connection to Azrafel's book collection. Because he is obsessed with the prophecies. Yeah, he wants the prophecies. He can't get them. And then we get the whole background of like, the only reason she actually wanted to print it is to get that one author free copy of it. She knew it wasn't going to sell because she could see the future. But I this actually gives me so much more respect for Agnes. It makes it more sensible. And this is actually one of the few things that I would have appreciated if we somehow had made it more clear. Because it was like, but she saw the future. How? Why? Wait. Yes, of course she did. And it's all deliberate. Like it is implied yes. in the show that it is deliberate but here it is made a bit more clear. Yeah, but then we have the entire drunk conversation and then not drunk conversation, which basically happens the same way as we did have at on the And then it is time for them to babysit and shape and guide and everything. And I have two notes on this entire thing, and that is Crowley literally models his nanny persona after Mary Poppins. I know, it's so good. And it's not really as much prominent, I don't think, in the book as it feels like visually on the screen. It is as prominent as the fact, and I'm so angry at myself that I never clocked it, that Missy on Doctor Who also looks exactly like fucking Mary Poppins. Yeah! And it makes absolute sense that maybe she was Mary Poppins because Mary Poppins had a sonic umbrella and a bag that is bigger on the inside. And I would be very surprised if that was not deliberate with how they dressed Missy. So apparently... Mary Poppins has a lot of connections to everything, which is perfect. (laughs) Yeah, it is absolutely incredible. And the second thing about them raising the boy, do you remember how upset I was that they never tried to instill a fear of dogs in Warlock as their backup plan? Well, guess what? In the book, it is part of their plan to make Warlock afraid of dogs. (laughs) 
I didn't realize that's what they were doing. And so this is one of the few things I'm really upset about because it makes them seem even more incompetent. Because in the show, they fail because they are actually incompetent. In the book, they are unlucky, but they are not incompetent. And yes, it makes them a bit more adorable and likable and human, but I complained so much about this missing fallback plan that when I read this, I was like, I knew it got pointed out. <laughs> and so, yeah, that is one of my first uh, moments. I love this for you. I love this for you. Me too. And I'm, if we ever get the chance to meet Neil Gaiman, this is something I want to ask. Why? Why? Oh, why? <laughs> I have questions throughout the book that are not related to the comparison and they're completely random and very obscure. You need to write them all down so we have a list. Oh, I will do that. I will go through it. Don't you worry. Not in a book. You need to write them in the list. Now, what I want to point out before we move on to the next part of this book, which is Wednesday, we get introduction of the four horsemen in this part. And the introduction is slightly different, but I was a lazy butt when I wrote that down, so I didn't write down in what way it was slightly different. So there you go, Vero. <laughs> so we first start off with War, and she is known as Scarlet. And the name Scarlet is an actual name, but it can also mean a couple of different things. So to me, a, com a completely first association with Scarlet is Scarlet Letter, which has very different meaning as to what red or scarlet as a color would have. But we have this whole way of her walking through life and, and, you know, way more of a backstory than we do on the show. And we end that with her saying, sitting on a train, deciding to become a war correspondent or a journalist saying further down the train, a fight broke out. Scarlet grinned. People were always fighting over her and around her. It was rather sweet, really. Which gives us a beautiful look inside of her personality, and I fucking love that. It's just so nice to get that little detail. Again, as I said multiple times so far, getting the extra step in that would be otherwise very difficult to get from a screen only. Then we have introduction of Famine, which he has a human name. His name is Dr. Raven Sable. And he is at the beginning of building his dietary empire and food empire, or rather not food empire, which is what we're going to find out how that kind of jumped when we get back to him 11 years in the future, which interesting. They all have their own names. And then he is obviously in America where the diet culture is a huge thing. And he has written a book about dieting, which is where we find him, where we meet him again, get a little more details on him as who he is and who he is as a person. And then we get pollution, which is not named as a pollution just yet. He is named as white, blank, albus, chalky, wise, or snowy. And also referred to as a he, not a them. That's another thing that gets upgraded for the show. And he has a very special description as well. It goes... Nobody really noticed him. He was unobtrusive. His presence was cumulative. If you thought about it carefully, you could figure out he had to have been doing something, had to have been somewhere. Maybe he even spoke to you, but he was easy to forget, was Mr. White. So it just gives us this really eerie feeling about him. And I love it while I hate it. <laughs> 
again gives us so much more to work with and then we have just a short mention of death there is no mentioning that it's death again he's just mentioned as he he was doing what he did best and what he was doing what he was he was not waiting he was working it's just excellent writing in my opinion it's just something that a little bit like couple of sentences that give us the background that cannot be shown on screen and they do try and they do a great job on the show with this but these little details just elevate these characters and give them so much more death is one of the exceptions where i am not happy with the adaptation because book death has so much more backbone and show death gets so personally offended with how everything goes and book death is just like well not this time see you next time he has no emotional involvement in the entire thing and i he doesn't have an agenda well he does have an agenda which is i'm doing my job and i'm deaf and i'm the end of it all and in the end i'm gonna get you all so bye but show death is sassy and angry and everything i wouldn't even say sassy he starts off as sassy and then he ends on hysterical yeah i much 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 prefer book death and it explains a lot of my perception when i was complaining about death like gradually more and then when i was talking about how i feel like he was written by terry pratchett and then i was just couldn't believe myself that i have said that because i've seen the show before and i've read the book it makes more sense to me now that i've reread the book and how death is in the book because i was holding on to those feelings and more to the book death and wasn't ex- exactly able to separate those two because it's been a while so it explains to me my emotions and feelings towards that. Yay, it all made sense. The last thing I want to point out before we go to Wednesday, Crowley eats food. We have situations in the part the world starts and before we reach Wednesday where Crowley eats and this is something that is very different in the show and I'm not sure yet what I like better. I have not made up my mind if I like the difference of one eating and one not or Mm -hmm. if I would have preferred them to both eat. I absolutely love that he eats and that's for one reason, one reason only. And that is that they say that Zerafel is eating deviled egg and Crowley is having angel cake. Oh my God. Yeah. Although I don't think, I don't think Crowley actually eats the angel cake. He has it and then Zerafel eats it. No. Hmm. No, no. Never mind then. I mean, you may have your head cannon, but no. But it is very cute that one has the devil and one has the angel food. I did not clock that. That is adorable. So we have finally reached the place in the book where we have actual days. And not gonna lie, I forgot this when I watched the show for the first time and when I rewatched it for the podcast with the nice signs and everything. I was like, ah, that's a nice addition. Because I literally forgot that it's an entire black page in the book with Wednesday. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I remember random tiny tidbits, but obvious things like this I'm like that's the weird curse of our brains you forgot this and I forgot that the ambassador literally lives in London yes (laughs) yeah but this is why there's two of us two of us yeah we can make it if we try random Lucifer reference Never will not be a Lucifer-related song. All right. I have so few notes for this, so you need to walk us through this and I will chime in four times, probably. (laughs) So basically, Wednesday starts 
with the uh, birthday party and what we get and it is not even alluded to in uh, the end of the previous part is Zerafel doing the magic and I literally I was so relieved that they have this in the book because I gaslit myself reading the previous part thinking that it's not in it because they're not alluding to it at all <laughs> okay so this is happening however what we do not have on the show is people with real guns yeah which i would expect is a deliberate choice because of how the world has changed in the last decades since the book was written and then came out because it is just not as funny anymore when you are discharging weapons near kids yeah well that's one thing and another thing is that there is a couple of different details in this chapter that have been purposefully left out because oh boy <laughs> did not expect myself to read those words in a works of of neil pratchett neil gaiman and terry pratchett. neil pratchett yes from this point onward they shall be called neil pratchett and terry gaiman sorry so yeah there is a very sensitive as we have already said multiple times growing up in this chapter with the times and kind of altering it into the entire thing being a little bit more with the times. Yeah. But the actual guns being discharged is for me the biggest difference in this one scene. The biggest moment was that Warlock actually pulls the trigger. And yes, at that point, it's a toy gun, but holy shit, what kind of a situation would have, would we have gotten into if this was a real gun? And the fact that a child, 11-year-old child, does not know better. To me, that is the thing. Despite the fact he lives in London with his family, this is an American family. And I do remember the time where we made fun of the lax gun laws and how stupid Americans are when it comes to that. But it kind of stopped being funny many, many years ago when the numbers just kept going up and up and up when it comes to accidental gun deaths and deliberate gun deaths. So... I totally understand why this is not in it anymore, but I also understand why it was in there back then, because hell yeah, we made fun of this. It's not funny, but yes, we did make fun of it. Now we move on to the dog and he doesn't show up in uh, the birthday party. So we kind of sorted that. And this is all very, very accurate in the show to the book. There's a description and it's something that caught me as we were watching the show because they use it word for word. And it's still one of my favorite things that happen that are set in the story. And that's the description of the dog when he goes, it was already growling and the growl was low rumbling snarl of spring coiled menace. The sort of growl that starts in the back of one throat and ends up in someone else's. Holy shit. The wordsmith. It's just so beautiful. So I just wanted to point that out because I fucking love that. But we have something that we kind of get in the show, but the way it is detailed in here is so beautiful. We get to meet the them for the first time through dog's eyes. And we also get so much more depth to dog because dog has an inner voice, basically. And so we learn a lot more, not just in this scene, but also later on, which makes it so much more plausible that he is not affected and following Adam. Because in the show, it doesn't really track for me 
why Dog is not following Adam's commands in this moment. But in the book, it's perfectly reasonable and sensible. Because he's like, oh, he has so many other dog things to do and he really enjoys being a dog dog. There's this whole inner struggle going on with, with Dog. So There's much more build up to it. There is much more background that it gives us in order for us to follow on, follow up with one of those. So that is one of my favorite things that we get to meet them for the first time this way. For me, the most important part about them when it comes to differences is obviously that Wednesdaydale does not say actually, actually all that much. He says it a lot though, to be fair. But not as much as I kind of would have expected given that they make it such a joke. Yeah, I mean, he's, he probably speaks way less on the show than he does in the book, so it would probably be over-actually too much over actually So they just kept the actuallys in and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, if it was that way, yeah. There are a few actuallys in there, don't get me wrong. So that was the most important thing for me about them. Pepper, still a girl boss, still kicks ass, still my favorite. Go Pepper, again, go Pepper. Those are pretty much my notes on the margins of the book. What I found interesting is that there is no interaction between Anathema and the them before. Not yet, yeah, yeah. In the book, we don't have the meet early in the show. They have this random encounter with each other, which, once again, in the book, Anathema... She does not have the opportunity to seem incompetent because she does not have the, oh, I'm face to face with the person that I'm supposed to be finding. Well, I mean, she does get that, but she has a little bit of a better explanation and we'll get to it. There is a whole thing happening there. But we also, I think this is attributed a lot to the fact that we don't get to expand the kids' families and the fact that they start off this entire thing with, you know, talking to Pepper's little sister or playing with her, which we don't have that character at all on the show for obvious reasons, for time issues. And there's just no reason to bring her in for one scene and then don't touch her for the rest of the show while in the book it actually works so it's it's one of those little things that would have helped build the story a little bit more in detail but it would not really make any sense to bring it in in order to cut something else because they would have to cut other things they did not have enough time and budget or whatever to do every single thing yeah anyway we move on to our ineffable husbands and they talk about what happened back then. How is it possible that Warlock is not the child? And there is a lot of talk about Satanism and stuff that has been very well translated into the show. And we get a couple of little throwaway lines throughout this entire conversation, which are used in the show, but not necessarily in this bit when they are on the way to the convent. The only thing I have for the entire convent is that we are missing this very intense moment where Crowley pushes Aziraphale up the wall and we have this very um, potentially sexual tension between the two of them. So that does not exist in any way, shape or form or even alluded to. So that was to me the most glaring and relevant. Now, back 
to Tatfield we go and we uh, get to explore a little bit of Anathema. And the biggest difference that I see within her on the show and her in the book is that she carries around a foot-long bread knife. And correct me if I'm wrong, in my head, a bread knife is the one that has a very dull tip but is a serrated knife. Yes. So that's what she carries around. So she's not going to stab you with it. You can stab someone with that. And then when you pull it out, you can also stab someone with a spoon in theory. I mean, in theory, yes, but it that's nasty. It's effective. Surely, but it's not very effective getting into someone's body. It depends on how competent she is. And I'm pretty sure she's very competent. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that she would rely more on witchcraft than a dull knife. I don't think she is that kind of witch. So no. And also, with a bread knife, it's harder to accidentally stab yourself, so it's probably much safer. Smart. Smart. But yeah, either way, this is like the biggest difference for me, because I don't think that we have her armed in that kind of way. She's armed by other things. In the show, she is basically just armed with foreknowledge because of Agnes. That's the only weapon that they give her, which... Ah, It's a shame. I do like uh, weaponized anathema. Yeah. Weaponized anathema makes... God, I love her. She's such a good character. I don't have anything else for Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Uh, The end of her bit ends with, at least there wasn't any traffic at this time of the night. And I just wrote down famous last words. And that we talked about. That's obvious. (laughs) One thing that is probably, it is, I know I remember we mentioned this on the show, watching the watching the episode, but it feels way more obvious in the book, again, for obvious reasons. It's obvious for obvious reasons. I'm very curious where this is going. <laughs> the doi. Uh, after Anathema leaves the car and Crowley and Zrafel are getting back inside, Crowley says, good night, miss, get in, angel, which is beautiful, amazing, and she does not bet an eye about that on the show but in the book it goes as far as her going well that explained it she has been perfectly safe after all which shows us that she is completely on the level yes these two are angels yes everything's fine and i know angels are real and i believe in them there's no doubt in my mind While on the show, I was like, I mean, she either didn't notice that he said that or, you know, anything could be the situation there. We don't really know the excessive knowledge that she has about how the world works. Well, for me, basically, Anathema in the books is way more competent and knowledgeable, but has literally no agency of her own. And show Anathema is partially, surprisingly incompetent, but has character depth and struggles. So basically, take your pick. Do you want an OP witch character with no substance? Or do you want a very human character that maybe sometimes misses something. Speaking of incompetency in the show, we also get to re-meet Sister Mary in this bit and we get an entire background on her. And she is much less incompetent in the book than she is in the show. She actually gets a career in the book. Well, she does have a career in the show. I mean, yes, but she doesn't just happen into it. She doesn't happen into it in the show. It is all explained there. Is it? She has a knack for certain things and that's why she like goes this path. It seems seems a bit more accidental in the show. I'm with you. She is more competent in the book. Definitely. 
And I absolutely adore Mary in the book. Oh yeah, Mary Mary in the book beats show Mary on all the levels. Exactly. So again, I absolutely understand why this is something that had to go. And I can't imagine how would they, they would have to add an entire storyline. I get it. But also, it's such a shame. She's such a good character. Come on. And we get one thing that I don't remember it being on the show. And you might correct me on this. But Crowley shapeshifts into a demon form when they're at the convent. I don't remember. That doesn't happen on the show, does it? So it's something that I had to actually go back and reread like multiple times. I think he shows his eyes in the show or something so that she like recognizes him. Oh, no, no, not at her. It's the guy that shoots them. I think like there was something. There must have been something, something, but they definitely don't go as far as in the book because basically it says we're following the guy that shot them and kind of going through the situation through his eyes. We also get way more background on the office people and everything. I mean, of course, yeah. And they are not connected to Newt in this situation. But again, that is actually a really, really nice addition in the show. I found it really, really good. But he goes, where one of the figures had been, there was something dreadful. He blacked out. Crowley restored himself to his favorite shape. I hate having to do that, he murmured. I'm always afraid I'll forget how to change back. And it can ruin a good suit. No, it's not that excessive in the show. Yeah. He went through a full-on transformation and I completely blasted through that when I read the book so I didn't know it was in the book and I didn't know that he has the ability to do something like that so that was really surprising to me actually but fucking long long chapter but yeah that's it for the convent here we get that whole thing with Anathema we get Zerafel finding the book and starting to read it just like in the show <laughs> Just like in the show. And then we get to pick up war. And that scene has different details. Essentially, it's the same thing. Which is why I did not comment on it at all. But we get her full name as a journalist. So she has a new name this time. It is Carmine Zuigiber. Zuigiber? It's Z-U-I-G-I-B-E-R. I don't know how to pronounce that because I don't know what nationality or part of the world she was aiming for. But I believe this is the first time she doesn't have the name Red. Carmine is Red, you... Is it? Yes. News to me. Zingiba is Ginger. Oh my god. Wow. I might have mentioned before we started recording yesterday, all her names are Red and Red, which is why I didn't care. So even when I didn't pay attention, I was right. <laughs> Why, thank you. But yes, this is uh, this is something uh, we go through this scene, and that this is how we close off Wednesday. And I did really enjoy the island exposition because this time it's happening on an island in the Mediterranean instead of in the middle of a desert. And the level of detail is just so beautiful. And that's Wednesday. And with. The end of Wednesday will end today's episode. Thank you so much for being here and please do tune in over the next couple of weeks when we are going to be releasing the rest of our coverage of the book. Can't wait to hear what you have to say.
And with this, we say thank you for listening. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us as The Apple of Truth on Twitter and Instagram. We will keep you updated if or when Twitter crashes and burns. You can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com. If you want to get that sweet, sweet extra content, early episode release and more, like six seasons of another show more, head to patreon.com slash T-A-O-T podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write us a positive iTunes review. They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.